this is exactly uh, part of the path of practice is to start to see through all of the usual ways of measuring what we let in and what we reject and um, to start to, to really get much more into the root of our own dissatisfaction. It's the first noble truth. Suffering, dissatisfaction, restlessness, it's all part of the, the sense that there's a problem. There's a problem somewhere, and it's with, it's with the practice, it's with me, you know, it's with the teacher, it's with, you, you always address it somewhere. Uh, but the fact is that this is exactly what the Buddha is encouraging us to recognize Mark's human existence, the human condition and says there is a view of all of this that we can begin to discern that is anybody is capable of opening to this view that is not well in the early teachings it talks about escaping you know but it's not escaping it's fully inhabiting all of the varieties of human experience and not freaking out about any of it Abhi Mushin Terrace first began studying Zen in 1976 after practicing transcendental meditation for several years. She met Robert Aiken Roshi when he visited the Seattle Zen group where she sat, and recognizing him from a significant dream she had, she attended a period of residential training at his Maui Zendo that following winter and sat several more retreats with Aiken Roshi before settling in with practice with Genke Roshi, who had moved to Seattle. Mushin began studying with Jan Chosen Bay's Roshi in 1987. Mushin was named a Dharma holder by Chosen Bay's Roshi in 2004 and received Sangha transmission from her in the White Plum lineage of Soto Zen in 2013, becoming her first lay successor. She is on the teaching panel at Great Vow Zen Monastery at Klatskanai, Oregon, and co-leads regular retreats there. She also is a visiting teacher at Zen West in Eugene, Oregon. Mushin founded the Corvallis Zen Group in 1992 and remains the Sangha's guiding teacher. They recently completed building the Sangha Jewels Zen Center, the first dedicated center for study and practice of the way in Corvallis, Oregon. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off of the cushion. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr. This podcast is sponsored by the Quantum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the Online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are eligible for a free month of training. To learn more, visit quantumzenonline.org and click the free trial membership button on the homepage. So Mushin, you seem to have been in that group of people in the 1970s who really got into transcendental meditation. And I'm wondering, was that a product of the time? Was there something that was really calling you? Like, how did you 
how did you start with the meditation practice and, and why did you start with, with TM? I really started when, uh, let's see, I was in my early 30s and trying to figure out how to make sense of my life course. And I was working at a facility for uh, runaway girls and my coworker was an avid TMer. So she, she said, do come and receive the, uh, the training. So I did. I signed up for a weekend and went there with my orange and handkerchief, wondering about what this was all about. I had no sense of it whatsoever. And that's when I received my mantra and began that practice. But pretty soon, I'd say within a year or two, I was feeling unsatisfied because there was no particular teaching. It was just sitting and reciting the mantra. And after the initial uh, enthusiasm and mystery wore off and it just became kind of a rote practice for me, I, I let go of it. And were you just on your own by then? Or? Yeah, I was on my own. I, didn't, I wasn't doing much, um, but I was really messed up and uh, very depressed. And I was at the end of my marriage. I went, I went for a while to Romania. I was studying Romanian uh, with the intention of becoming a translator and, because very few people translated Romanian, and I <laughs> wanted to translate Romanian poetry. Um, and when I got back, it was very clear. I was married at the time that my that that relationship was not was not uh, right for me. So I left that marriage. So I I went through a very unstable time of being quite confused. And again, one day I I came to a um, a, friend, a neighbor of mine who was on his way to the Zen Sit at the art building at University of Washington. And uh, he said, come on, come, come along. So I thought, oh, sure, why not? So I went, and the moment I sat down in that painting studio, which smelled of oil paints, I, um, I felt as though I'd come home. I, it was so familiar to me. I was so relieved to have come to this practice. The very first moment, that was it. There was no turning back. And so how did you know to, you know, just talking it out in the sense of I would imagine that most people would then hop back into what they knew, which at that point probably was some form of TM for you. Like, how did you know how to sit Zen or did you get a little guidance to just be there? No, or? <laughs> that was in the time when you didn't receive any kind of instruction whatsoever, but uh, they just said just. Uh, well, nobody said anything except hi and have a seat and cross your legs and uh, follow your follow your breath or count your breaths. Mm -hmm. Well, they didn't even say that. They said just uh, have a seat and watch your mind or something like that. So um, I was both incredibly relieved and incredibly confused about right. what I was supposed to be doing. And so basically my very first meditation was well, uh, I'm meditating, um, so um, this is just my usual mind, and that was the that was the first mental stream that filled my attention in that first meditation. And yet, it felt so familiar. 
I was really, I was really comfortable. I was really uncomfortable physically sitting <laughs> cross-legged, <laughs> but, um, but there was something really right about it. Uh, and, uh, and I hated it also because I was so uncomfortable and I didn't know what I was doing and, you know, but it, it was right. So it was quite a, you can, you can see it was really powerful in order to, um, keep me coming back. And I did. And a lot of it had to do with the, the Sangha. It was a great group of people who, uh, were fellow, fellow confused people who, who knew that this was something that was a really good thing to be doing. It was led by Glenn Webb, who was a professor of art history at University of Washington, who'd been practicing for many years and seemed so, he was so much in the practice. He was such a good guy and uh, had such confidence in practice that we all kind of uh, fell into it with him. And he gave us the basic form, which is sitting in rows ringing a bell to begin, showing us walking meditation when we got up to stretch our legs. And then he brought with, he brought, um, let's see, about, that was, I started in the winter, and that summer in August, he brought one of the meditation masters from Eheji, Hirano Osho-san, to lead a retreat on Vashon Island. So I signed up for that retreat, and um, even though it was incredibly difficult, I I was um, deeply moved by the quiet that I tasted at that retreat. What do you think was in the quiet that was so compelling for you to sit through the discomfort? I guess I would just call it authentic, recognizing it was the true, my true source. I didn't think of it with those words. I didn't, I, I had no way to describe the, uh, the flavor of what I was experiencing, but it was so authentic. And it was the first, it, it really nourished my longing for knowing how to live my life that this that I could in fact be this authentic even though I had no idea how to integrate that into my general life uh, I now was in touch with a source of, of deep nourishment that gladdened my heart and eased all of my anxiety you sat a retreat with Aiken Roshi and then saw something else there as well enough to go sit with him in Hawaii? Well, it, it actually was a dream that I had, oh. which I mentioned in my bio. Right, um, right, right. Because I had had a really powerful dream uh, the week before. Glenn said uh, one of the first American Zen masters was coming to visit, and he strongly suggested that we all come that on that Wednesday night. And I'd had, I had a dream after that uh, and before that Wednesday night that, that really knocked my socks off and in walked the person in the dream. And so um, I didn't even think about it, you know, and, and that weekend he was offering a full day sit, which I went to, and I really was inspired by him. He's, he's kind of a grandfatherly type 
and very, very uh, well-spoken and full of good humor and also a political activist, which I really liked because that was an important part of my life. And, um, and then he said he was going to be having a, offering a three-month training period at the Maui Zendo that fall, and we were all invited to sign up if any of us wanted to come. So I, uh, I immediately uh, got another job and saved my pennies to be able to go there. Yeah, and um, that was really, he, he was such a um, genuine and uh, uh, trustworthy guide. He wasn't, he wasn't full of, uh, there was no veneer about him. He was very genuine and he was rather awkward, which was reaffirming to me that this awkward person could also be so at ease. I mean, socially, socially, um, not, he wasn't a glad hander of any sort and he wasn't selling Zen. He wasn't trying to sell anything. And so you came home after those three months and you met Genki Roshi who had moved to Seattle and you, you started studying, studying with Genki. Yeah. So he, Glenn Webb had, uh, Glenn went to Japan every year to do a retreat. And when he was there, he met uh, Genki, who was looking around for a post and interested in coming to America. So he he had him come. And um, and so he was there when I got back from the Maui Zendo. And the Seattle Zen Center had was hosting him as their teacher. Um, so I just continued to sit with the group that I'd been sitting with all along and Genki was the teacher mm. and he was, he was exotic. He was Japanese. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he didn't speak any English. Uh, and, um, but he really had a, a bearing that was wonderful. He was a terrific, um, well, I guess there's just a basic trust, you know, we didn't, we didn't have any. Uh, skepticism about his ability to uh, transmit the true Dharma to us, uh, which he did through how he behaved and how he uh, and his great skill. He was a wonderful um, calligrapher and um, a uh, potter, a great cook and a landscape designer. So he and he started a, a landscape business with some of the members of the group. And um, and taught us, led us, led the sits. It's really interesting when you think about Genki because he never did learn to speak much English, but he was a full-on teacher just by his presence and by our belief in him and in the way. Mm-hmm. You know, so without a lot of words, uh, that was very, very interesting. Later on, when I met, you know, I had been with. Aiken Roshi, who was very articulate about the Dharma, and then Chosen Roshi, who was very articulate about Dharma, but also uh, was very uh, psychologically savvy. So she really had a very uh, integrative way of teaching. Has. She's she's very much still kicking. Um, yeah, but with Genki, it was not, it wasn't verbally offered particularly. He had one of our, one of our fellow members, um, uh, Genjo Marinello, who's now a teacher in his own right in Seattle, um, who didn't speak Japanese, but he translated Genki's talks. And it was always kind of a mystery how he did that. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was really funny. <laughs> but um, uh, so we got a little bit of uh, verbal teaching. Genki would give these talks in Japanese? Yes. And there were a bunch of people sitting around who couldn't understand him? Right, and Genjo would translate. No kidding. <laughs> it was very interesting. I ne- I always meant to ask Genjo, like, what were you doing? How'd you do that? Yeah. It's uh, so, but... He's actually been on the show. Uh, oh, yeah? Yeah, like uh, six or seven months ago. Oh, really? Yeah. And so what did he say? He didn't mention that at all. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> and so you, you met uh, Chosen uh, Roshi. In 1987, but I think you had read something by her earlier. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. She was at uh, Zen Center in Los Angeles, and they had a uh, uh, journal kind of thing that they published periodically that was called The Ten Directions. And she wrote an article in there about practicing, uh, being a practitioner in a marriage being married to somebody while also being very seriously uh, a practitioner and some of the challenges that went along with that. And I was, I was married and very challenged at the time by being with someone who was not a practitioner and always feeling as though, and I had kids, <laughs> I had right. one, one child at that point, um, uh, always feeling as though I wasn't I wasn't really attending to my practice the way I needed to, and I wasn't really attending to my marriage or my my family the way I was supposed to. So I it was very, very uncomfortable. So this article, she really described the experience I was having. So when I read that, and I had never come across a woman also mm. uh, who was a Zen teacher, I, I, resolved, I said, I really want to meet her. And then... In 87, I saw that she was leading a retreat at Cloud Mountain. So I signed up for that. And, uh, and it, you know, I was just... At that point, um, Gen- I had left um, the Seattle Zen Center. The Seattle Zen Center kind of blew up because mm. of a number of issues that came up with Genki and uh, confusion. I'm, I don't even remember the details particularly, mm-hmm. but... I hadn't had a teacher for uh, several years. I had been sitting with one of Aitken's groups periodically in that in, in, during that time. Um, but and then I I sat with uh, Joan Rick Roshi, who is a Dharma sister of Aitken's, uh, because she came to um, to help out. I don't remember how that whole thing went actually, but. Um, she was there and then she moved. But meanwhile, I met Chosen at this retreat at Cloud Mountain and was really felt as though I had finally, finally met my teacher. Right. Sometimes it seems to take a little while. Yeah. And not, not that I hadn't had teachers before. I think, I think often people have three teachers. Mm-hmm. And um, there's there's the first one, the initiating teacher. Right. Um, I've just seen this pattern. I don't think it's it's a hard and fast. Nothing's hard and fast. But uh, yeah, the the first one, and then the second teacher who betrays, or the the student has a feeling of betrayal. Uh, 
Mm. Uh, which can either be through malfeasance on the part of the teacher or a sense of um, tremendous disillusionment about the path that comes with practice. There is a there's a time when you reach the end of your ego rope with practice, and it looks as though it's the it's the practice itself that's problematic. But uh, actually, it's it's the refuge in ego solutions, ego project um, that doesn't come through in the end. There's no solution to the suffering uh, in samsara when we are fully identified with having to be somebody special. And we see through that. We're not somebody special. Anyway, there's betrayal that comes in a lot of different forms as a that's an experience of betrayal. And then the third teacher who really kind of guides, and that's how who Chosen has been for me. She really helped me wend my way through the the wilds of my own psychology <laughs> and all of the things that got in the way of uh, really fr- being free, uh, being trusting a view that is wide open, that's, that doesn't hold to one ground. You know, it's really interesting what you said about the the three teachers. I think there's, you know, I'll have to think about that in my own life, but it's, I think there's something really true about that in the sense, um, you know, when you first discover the practice, you know, it feels like water uh, and you're thirsty. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. then, and then you start to become a little more comfortable and... Um, and perhaps a little more discerning, and you uh, start, even out of an ego position, start wondering if this is <laughs> the right place or, you know, for whatever, you know. Yes, yes. Necessarily, you have to wend your way through all of that. Right. Yeah. And then you, there are teachers who, all, it's almost like you have to realize that they're also human. There's this, this great fallibility. And then the another teacher, the that's the, a great guide. Yeah, and that second one, where you realize they're they're a human being, mm. it really is. You're seeing through the archetype. You know, when you're in love at the beginning with the with this whole world, the spiritual world, you're in love, and all of your discernment is nowhere to be found. Right. And then, but it's it. what you're in love with is you finally find a way to connect with the spiritual archetype, and it fills you up. And so you look at the teacher like this archetypal, even though Buddhism says, when you meet the Buddha, kill the Buddha, kind right. of, right? Mm-hmm. But it's just words until it finally happens. And then there's this incredible dissolution and dis- dissolution and disillusionment. Very, can be very difficult. Yeah. It's almost like we, instead of seeing through the teacher to what's on the other side of the teacher, we want it to be the teacher, but the teacher is still human. So they, they actually can't be what's on the other side of it. Mm-hmm. And um, it's still out. Yes. And it's still outside. I mean, realization is still not your own, right? The teacher holds it for you. And then you see, Oh, this, this vessel it cannot hold it for me. Right. Yeah. It's a big cry. It can be a big crisis. And, and so you've been with, uh, 
with Chosen for uh, the past, well, it's I guess almost 30 years. 30 years, yeah. Yeah, wow. And you uh, became a, a lay successor in 2013. Y you'd, you'd already founded a, a Sangha. Um, yeah. In uh, Corvallis in 92 but now you you've you're, you're a, a you know a successor and i'm wondering how your own journey of you know from student to sort of founding of a sangha to becoming a teacher what that has been like now that people are sort of <laughs> looking to you to hold yeah. hold it Spe for them. speaking of crisis yeah right <laughs> I think that transmission is a moment of, it can be really profoundly a crisis, actually, because it's one more step. I mean, the, the path of practice gets steeper and steeper in a, in a certain way, because you, you know, this ego, there's no such thing as ego, but it's what we call this whole bundle of habitual self-identity mm -hmm. and separate self-identity. And, um, and you know uh, that there is nothing, there's nothing to, it's just you. It's just little old you carrying this wonderful way. We, are be, we become uh, followers of the way is the way I like to say it. We have a, a group in my, in my sangha, we call it the Dao Ren, which are people of the way, people who have received uh, the 16 precepts and really, really know that their life is the bodhisattva way and practice wholeheartedly in their lives. And um, yeah, when you become when you become a teacher, the responsibility is enormous, not to mislead, not to uh, get caught in your own your own karmic stuff. Hopefully, by the time you, you begin to teach, um, you're really aware of it. You're aware of all of your shadow or much of your shadow material so that when it comes up, you're not just coming blindly from that part of you, right? But, um, yeah, I, I've had a number of groups. I always thought of them as just asking people to sit with me because it helped me be very regular in my practice. Yeah, for sure. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like you identify with that. Well, also, I mean, what I read on your website, which I, as soon as I read it, I completely agreed. You were like, the duration is not what's so important. It's the consistency that's yeah. so important. And I, I couldn't agree with that more. I mean, I, I think duration is also important, but yeah. it's really, every day is better than an hour every four days <laughs> that's right that's right because it is the the it is a way of life the bodhisattva way says it it is a way of life and your life is unfolding moment by moment so to have have a practice the practice is always with you mm. your life is always with you in this moment what is your life this is it now this is the way so, um, yeah, so I, I always had, so Klatsk and I is three hours from Corvallis. So my teacher was three hours away. Um, and there was no way that my Sangha practice could be just up there because that was just too rarefied. So, yeah, I, I, 
I um, started a group as soon as I moved down here from Seattle with my husband and kids. Uh, the very first week, we cleared. I, I told them to go to the park, and I set up a zendo in our living room. And one person, I'm a, a psychotherapist, so the first week I got to Corvallis when we moved here from Seattle, I attended a community, uh, the uh, community center where there was counseling available, and I wanted to volunteer because I needed to establish myself as a counselor here. I met a woman who had just gotten back from a 10-day retreat, Hmm. uh, one of the uh, Goenka 10-day retreats, and she was totally freaked out because she didn't know how to deal with the world. And um, so I I went up to her and said, well, let's just talk because, you know, by then I'd been practicing a long time. Right. And so so then I said, well, look, come and sit with me on Sunday. So the two of us started sitting. And then within a few months, um, I moved that because my kids and husband were so generous, but they were sick of having to leave every Sunday morning. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I got in with the uh, the yoga center group and started a sit there. And then it's grown from there. That's always been going on. And then I would go up to uh, great Val to practice. And before then, before they got to great Val, they were up in the, uh, Columbia Gorge at a facility for a while. So I would go and do retreats with her. That's basically how I knew her for many years. And as a teacher now though, is there something that you, that you're really seeing in your practice as you've moved into this teacher role as these students are coming and they're sort of, you know, trying to <laughs> trying to deal with this suffering, maybe projecting all over you as well. Like, what is that like as a teacher who's also, you know, a practitioner who is still on the way? Oh, well, it feels like an incredible privilege mm. and responsibility because, uh, and, you know, I'm also a psychotherapist. Mm-hmm. So I have a sense of what, of what, um, is curable through practice <laughs> and what needs other kinds of support. And to be able to um, help somebody identify the idea, the it's kind of cognitive behavioral therapy in a certain way, all of the ideas and behaviors that get in the way of being able to settle very deeply into an open state. Um, is is really the trust that's given to me uh, to to help somebody with that is very moving to me, and it's also uh, it's it's a great uh, experience of don't know mind because I can't know what somebody's path is; mm-hmm. only they can discover that as they go. So I can ask. I see my. My uh, what I've come to is a certain method, which is for myself when I'm giving Dharma talks or uh, in Sanzen with people, the interview with the teacher, asking, what do I mean by this? So somebody comes in and they're filled with a story. I can help them identify that as a, as a narrative, identify um where it is in the body. I use I use the four foundations of mindfulness a lot. Are you familiar with those? 
Um, no. Four foundations. So the four foundations are, it's, it's part of the original uh, teachings of the Buddha. Um, where is this experience arising in the body? The awareness of body as body. The second is uh, feelings, which are not emotions so much as what is this experience? What's the valence of it? Is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? What is the, and the third foundation is the foundation of consciousness. So what's kind of the weather front, the energetic body? So do you feel constricted? Do you feel jittery? Do you feel, you know, just the general uh, flavor of what's going on? And then the fourth foundation is mental formation. So that includes everything. Anything that is formed is a form in awareness, right? So that's the storyline that's going on. That's the emotional fears or anger or whatever it is. So you, it's, it's a method of recognizing that an experience is comprised of a lot of layers of sense information and uh, kind of storyline that has gripped that we're, we're in the grip of. Yeah, so um, so when somebody comes to me, I mean, my students, I'm always trying to, um, to draw from, and this, the, uh, to draw from the full wealth of Buddhist teachings, which are vast. Mm-hmm. It's not, I'm not just teaching Zen. Right. I mean, well, Zen is not necessarily Buddhist. Zen is just this. Yeah, right. It, but to get to just this, you have to wade through a lot of stuff. Yeah, that it sounded almost very vipassana in that the way that which of course, you know, the sort of first the foundational teachings. Yeah. Yeah, well they they're useful in in that way, especially somebody coming in cold. Mhm. We don't we're not in a in a, a culture that has any kind of underpinnings for self-reflection, except psychological, which are mostly very ego-based. Right. So, um, so Vipassana really includes the body. It does. Yeah. Which, you know, when you mentioned that woman who'd come back from the, the 10 day Goenka, um, I can, I, I did a, one of his retreats, um, and I loved it, but I was, you know, I, been practicing many years by that point and I can really see how somebody might you know it's so embodied and we're so disconnected from our body in the west that yeah it, it could almost be I can imagine it being very jarring to be like yeah. oh, what is this body <laughs> who is this that is all of this <laughs> that's right it comes up really suddenly in a 10-day retreat and comes up slowly but surely in regular daily practice. Right. So, so, you know, I see that in our center. People come and they're starry-eyed with practice for a while, but then yeah, <laughs> wherever you go, there you are, you know, in the famous, that great title for a book. John Kabat-Zinn, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's... it's yeah. I think people, when they first start taking a half an hour out of their life, it feels blissful because our lives are so packed and it's almost like they have found something, almost like an excuse to take a break from the culture. Yeah, 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 that's that's good. But then 
when they sit the first retreat or they start seeing the mind cycle so heavily, mm-hmm. it can become, well, it can be, it can become very heavy. Very heavy. And, and the story that comes up is, well, it doesn't work for me. Or yeah. I, I, this is, this, this is ridiculous because it's not helping at all. It's making it worse. Right. So what do you say to people when they're, they're really f- in that first sort of, that first peak or valley out of the one, whatever it is. The, the first, yeah, <laughs> uh, drop off in, or the first arising of skeptical doubt, basically. Right. Mm-hmm. Skeptical doubt, one of the big hindrances. So I talk about that as a hindrance. And, and that they are not, they are having this experience not because of anything, but that the fact that they have the same nature as Shakyamuni Buddha. Mm. That this this is exactly uh, part of the path of practice is to start to see through all of the usual ways of measuring what we let in and what we reject, and um, to start to to really get much more into the root of our own dissatisfaction. It's the first noble truth. Right. Suffering, dissatisfaction, restlessness, it's all part of the, the sense that there's a problem. Mm-hmm. There's a problem somewhere, and it's with, it's with the practice, it's with me, you know, it's with the teacher. It's with, you, you always address it somewhere, uh, but the fact is that this is exactly what the Buddha is encouraging us to recognize marks human existence, the human condition. And says there is a view of all of this that we can begin to discern that is anybody is capable of of, of opening to this view that is not well in the early teachings it talks about escaping you know but it's not escaping it's fully inhabiting all of the varieties of human experience not freaking out about any of it, but just seeing it and knowing its nature, knowing the nature of it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Abby Mushin Terrace encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting CorvallisZenCircle.com. I'll leave a link for it in the show notes. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quanam Online Sangha. Listeners of this podcast are eligible for a free month of training, which includes live Q&A interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. To access your free month of training, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I'm your host, Ian Whitemar, and I hope you will join me again next week.